0: and 365 Day Returns. This week,
1: the remains of a crime scene emerged through the sand near an ancient lake.
2: I never expected in any dream that I would find the remains of a massacre or the earliest massacre recorded in history.
3: And a brain sensor that melts away after use. In the future, we envision a kind of bioresorbable,
1: bioelectronic medicine, so to speak. Plus, what happens when domesticated chickens go wild? This is the Nature Podcast for January the 21st, 2016. I'm Adam Levy.
4: And I'm Kerry Smith. Humans have been carefully domesticating animals for thousands of years, but sometimes their hard work is reversed.
5: You and Callaway went to meet the feral chickens of Hawaii. If you speak to anyone who's visited the island of Kauai, they'll probably mention two things. Number one, the place is gorgeous. White sand beaches that go on forever, thousand-metre deep ravines. The whole island's a postcard. And number two, there are chickens everywhere, on beaches, in parks, even outside the KFC. Kauai wasn't always full of feral chickens. Eben Garing, an ecologist at Michigan State University, says that locals blame it on a pair of hurricanes in the 80s and 90s.
3: The local residents say that the, the hurricanes blew the chickens all over the island.
5: The destruction those storms wrought on the island was so severe that... Um, you know, the grocery stores were closed, the power was out,
6: people were struggling to find clean water and so on. And so it would make sense that at, the, at
5: that point in time, a lot of backyard chickens would be um, left to, to their own means. They, they went to the jungles where they encountered their distant cousins? Yeah, something like that. A couple years ago, intrigued by the heritage of the chickens, Gang traveled to Kauai to gather some of their DNA. He discovered that there are probably hybrids between regular domestic fowl that escaped and Polynesian chickens that have been roaming the jungles of Kauai for hundreds of years. Now he's back on the island to learn more about the feral chickens. To learn how this diverse gene pool that hybridization has created is being molded by the selective environment in which these animals live. Or in other words, to figure out what happens when chickens go wild. In order to study them, you first have to catch them. But the chickens can be wary. We drove to a popular grazing spot for the chickens, a grassy outlook near a waterfall. So
7: this morning we're headed for um, the Lookout Falls just near Kapar.
5: Evolutionary biologist Dominic Wright has a simple method of catching the birds. He ties a piece of string to his big toe and then ties the other end to a spring-loaded net, and he waits.
7: As long as you don't focus your attention on the chickens... It's not too hard. The problem is as soon as you, uh, the reason it has to be toe operated, uh, just a piece of string attached to the trigger, um, as soon as you bend down or focus any of your attention on them, uh, the birds immediately get suspicious and start moving backwards. So uh, we've kind of, in true field biologist style, have settled on this more uh, ad hoc solution, i.e. a piece of string attached to my toe to trigger the device.
5: After our short drive to the waterfall, Dominic sets up the trap, I gather this involves a lot of waiting.
7: Absolutely. The nicest thing with this is it kind of involves waiting in kind of rather beautiful surroundings, so yeah. it's not nearly so bad. The greater our insouciance, the more relaxed the chickens are.
5: It takes about 15 minutes, but finally, a hen is tempted by the seed. We casually look away, and then Dominic's toe pulls the trigger.
7: We've activated our little gull trap, and now... Gently removing the female. We have a little cage for her. We can just pop her in there.
5: With our bird in hand, we drive back to the lab where the chicken will be sacrificed and its anatomy examined.
7: So that's a, a body weight of 1,204 grams. So that's a, an incredibly heavy female. So that would be much more akin to a domestic size female. Huge in comparison to some of the other birds we've
5: had. This stout specimen is one of the largest feral chickens we've seen. And size is just one of the many traits that evolution has tweaked in the feral chickens after 30 years on the loose. Their plumage looks more like their wild ancestors. Brilliant reds and greens in roosters and drab browns in hens. But the occasional white feather hints at their domestic ancestry. And the researchers have noticed that they often sit on their eggs before they hatch a behavior that was bred out of domestic chickens to make their eggs easier to collect. For Goering, these changes offer important lessons in how animals respond to new environments. And besides, he just loves to watch it in action. I'm fundamentally, I'm just fascinated with evolution. That's the, 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 real, the simplest answer. That was Eben Goering at Michigan State University. And before him, Dominic Wright, who's at Linköping University in Sweden.
4: Ewan Calloway there, who wrote about his visit to
1: Hawaii in a feature. Plenty of chicken picks up there as well. Coming up in the news chat, researchers are being kept in the dark after a French clinical trial went wrong. But
4: first, Noah Baker reports on a new way of monitoring the injured brain.
8: Every year in the US, hundreds of thousands of people are admitted to hospital with traumatic brain injuries. The most severe cases result from things like car crashes or gunshots, and they often require surgery.
3: Folks who suffer from uh, traumatic uh, brain injuries, when they're admitted to uh, the emergency room, one of the first things that a neurosurgeon will do will be to insert sensors into the intracranial space. That's John Rogers
8: from the University of Illinois in the United States. The sensors he's talking about measure the pressure and temperature of the intracranial space, the area inside the skull which houses the brain.
3: Pressure and temperature are critical parameters that uh, dictate, you know, uh, an individual's health. If those parameters fall outside of a very narrow window, then the uh, then the surgeon needs to take immediate action. Uh, otherwise, you know, one one is uh, facing a risk of uh, brain damage.
8: These sensors are a vital part of medical practice, but the current technology is far from perfect.
3: The standard. Uh, device for this uh, type type of uh, application you know involves uh, hardware that inserts into the intracranial space and then connects to external data acquisition equipment with hardwired connections and they remain uh, in uh, operation uh, you know during that critical risk period for the patient which might be several days to uh, a couple of weeks as they uh, recover from their uh, injury the wires are coming out uh, through a suture site uh, and that uh, interface Point represents anitis for infection, inflammation, and hemorrhage. And then, furthermore, you know, because the devices are not needed forever, but just through that critical operational uh, period, they have to be extracted uh, using a surgical uh, procedure, and that that procedure opens up the patient to additional risk. Rogers and his team of engineers and clinicians are trying to find a solution to some
8: of these problems by making a sensor which will simply melt away when its work is done
3: what researchers call bioresorbable. So the vision was to create a device platform that could insert into the intracranial space, measure pressure and temperature with the same accuracy and precision of the current clinical gold standards, but uh, build them out of uh, a complete uh, suite of materials that would biodegrade uh, over time, simply uh, dissolve and disappear completely without a trace, thereby eliminating the need for surgical extraction. That means
8: using materials which are unconventional in electronics, copper wires just won't cut it.
3: There are other metals uh, that, uh, you know, are electrical conductors at a decent level, uh, relevant for these kinds of applications, that are at the same time biodegradable. So magnesium is one example. It reacts to form magnesium hydroxide, Uh, which is uh, biocompatible. In fact, magnesium is a recommended component of a daily diet. So if you look at a multivitamin, it'll have magnesium in it. So so we use magnesium.
8: Roger's team combined magnesium with a host of other body-friendly materials like silicon to build a temperature and pressure sensor. Then they made it wireless.
3: That reduces the risk of infection at the site where the wires exit the skull. The wireless uh, embodiment involves two subsystems. Uh, one of those subsystems is the actual sensor that goes into the intracranial space. The other subsystem provides wireless data communication that mounts just under the skin uh, of the skull. So it's outside of the intracranial space. Now, the patch in the current embodiment is not 100% bioresorbable. It's about 85 Percent bioresorbable, but because the device, uh, that part of the device, that subsystem is located outside of the intracranial space, there's very little risk to the patient for a small residual amount of bioresor- a non-bioresorbable material just under the skin.
8: The team can see these sorts of devices being used in
3: other organs and systems for a wide range of other functions. These same materials could be, you know, configured in different ways to measure other properties of clinical interest. So I think one of the reasons why we're excited is because, uh, you know, we have a technology that I think is addressing a very specific and important known clinical need, Uh, but it's a platform, right? So we can imagine... Different kinds of sensors used in other parts of the body as well. And not just for sensing. It turns out you can do electrical stimulation. You can do uh, thermal therapy. You can do programmed drug release. So in the future, we envision a kind of bioresorbable bioelectronic medicine, so to speak, where the devices are sensing, but they're also intervening in a therapeutic sense, all in a hardware platform that eventually bioresorbs and and disappears after the, the function is no longer needed. The device has been shown to be effective in rats, but it's yet to be tested in humans. We think we have a set of materials and a, and a uh, you know practical manufacturing route. Where we're going now is to demonstrate the technology on larger animal models with uh, more advanced device designs and materials to allow stable operation of the sensor beyond the time frames that we're demonstrating now. Just to kind of over-engineer the functionality, and eventually you know step through the regulatory framework that's ultimately needed to you know use this kind of device in humans. And that's kind of where we're going. This is the early days on that effort, but but we don't see any fundamental roadblocks for uh, for getting there.
4: That was John Rogers speaking with Noah Baker. You can find out more about the sensors in the
1: paper at nature.com/nature. Stay tuned for research into an ancient murder mystery. But before that, it's time for the research highlights with Cory Look.
9: Since the Industrial Revolution of the 1800s, the oceans have absorbed a lot of the heat from the planet's warming climate. New research shows that the oceans have taken up nearly half of all that heat just in the past two decades. Scientists looked at ocean temperature data dating back to the mid-19th century. They found that most of that heat has built up in the upper layers of the oceans, but more than one-third of the heat was found below 700 meters. That amount is rapidly increasing as the climate warms. The paper was published in the journal Nature Climate Change. Astronomers have spotted the brightest ever supernova. The exploding star is more than a hundred times brighter than ordinary supernovae and about twice the brightness of the last record holder. The supernova is low in hydrogen and seems to come from a massive galaxy that is brighter than the Milky Way. The researchers are baffled by how it originated and what is fueling it. They are now using the Hubble Space Telescope to figure out more about the supernova's home galaxy. You can find the study in the journal Science.
4: Adam, I've got to warn you, this next story is a bit gruesome.
1: That's okay. I am very brave.
4: Okay, then, if you're sure. Well, it concerns a brutal case of mass murder, a whole community group, by the look of it men, women, and children. What happened? They were shot with bows and arrows or hit in the head.
1: My God, when was this?
4: Well,. It was about 10,000 years ago, and that makes it the earliest known case of violence involving two groups. The researchers are even calling it the earliest case of warfare. The skeletons were found poking out of the ground in a region of Kenya already well known for more ancient human remains. Twelve skeletons were still lying in the positions they'd died in, ten or so more in fragments. Some of them had arrowheads embedded in them, made of a black rock called obsidian, sharpened to a point. Sharmini Bundel has put on her detective hat and picked up the case, ably assisted by Chief Case Investigator Marta Mirazon lar whose team discovered the crime scene at a place called Nataruk, near Lake Turkana. Marta is still near the field site now, hence the wind you'll hear in the background.
2: So Nataruk today is a barren area of semi-desert and yet what we find is that 10,000 years ago it was the edge of a lagoon very close to the edge of actually Lake Turkana and it was full of animals and wildlife which obviously also attracted hunter-gatherers. And how did you find the site and the human remains? The site was actually discovered by this young man called Pedro, So Pedro has been working with us since 2009. So the first day of the season, in the field season in 2012, Pedro said, through translators, because we don't speak the same language, he said, I've got bones for you. So we went to this site, and indeed on the surface there were broken human remains. But then I saw the back of the skull uh, of a person that was just eroding from the ground. And I thought, well, either this is just the back of a skull broken, or there's a whole person there. The chance of finding uh, articulated skeletons, it's uh, small. So we were extremely excited when we found the first ones. And it just so happened that the first that we excavated was lying face down. That's why we saw the back of the head. And the head had been smashed uh, in on both sides. And then the second skeleton to come out of the ground was another one found face down another man uh, lying prone on, on his stomach. And he had the the obsidian bladelet embedded in the skull. So by then we thought, okay, here we have something really special. And that sounds
6: pretty violent. So So they're the kind of injuries that would definitely kill you.
2: Yes. So the injury suffered by this man crushed uh, both the side and the front of the head inwards, breaking, causing a number of fractures that radiated throughout the skull, and the neck is also broken. So I am sure the second blow killed him.
6: This unfortunate man was only one of a number of murder victims found at the site. What else did you find when you excavated?
2: There were 12 skeletons that were still articulated in the ground, some better preserved than others. And of those, 10 had evidence of having died violently. So among these, four uh, have injuries that are consistent with projectiles, presumably bows and arrows another four skeletons have blows to the head and then there are some individuals that show fractures to the knees to the hands to the ribs, all consistent with a pattern of conflict uh, uh, wounds. Uh, among the most unusual finds for me are actually one was this young young lady who was found sitting uh, and she had her hands crossed between between her legs, lying on the feet that were also crossed. They may suggest that uh, she was bound at the time of death, and she was pregnant. So that was actually a, a moment that we all stopped to think. With the
6: range of uh, ages uh, uh, and both sexes being present, this, this sort of looks like a whole community.
2: Yes, my interpretation is that this was a, a, a small forage, a small community, a foraging party, and that they were surprised by an attack. Oh, it's pretty brutal, huh? Yes, actually it is. But it, but that's one of the things. I think that there are cases of uh, serious violence before. There's even a Neanderthal that has uh, lethal injuries to the head. But we don't know if it was a one-to-one Uh, situation, or if it involved many individuals. I think that what is unique about Nataruk is that it provides conclusive evidence of something that must have been an intergroup conflict. Evidence for that before you have sedentary societies, before you have villages and cemeteries, that is very unique.
6: Is this mystery solved now or are
2: there more questions that you want to answer? Well, I think that the discovery at Nataruk raises a number of questions. So, was this a foraging party? Did they have a base camp somewhere? What did the base camp look like? What was it that they they had that was worth raiding for? Uh, we don't know if they killed everybody. Perhaps others survived or were taken. Even to think, well, where are the sources for obsidian that somebody was exploiting to make these weapons? Um, so you've got lots of questions for future episodes of CSI Lake Turkana. Well, part of the work of the archaeologist and the anthropologist is to uh, act like detectives in a, in a crime scene. In the team, we have uh, people who are trained in physical anthropology and osteoarchaeology, which for skeletons are the same skills that forensic scientists have. I never expected in any dream that I would find the remains of a massacre or the earliest massacre recorded in history. It had never crossed my mind.
4: That was Marta Mirazon-La. Case closed? Not exactly. Excavations continue apace at Lake Turkana, looking for remains from all periods of human prehistory. To find out more about this murder mystery, make sure you head over to our YouTube channel, where there's a video about the finds. That's youtube.com slash nature video channel.
1: Time now for our news chat and Ewan Callaway is back with us. Hi, Ewan. Hello. Our first story is regarding a clinical trial which tragically went very wrong
5: in France. What actually happened here? This was a, a, a clinical trial in northern France in the city of Rennes. Uh, it was operated by a company called Biotrial, which was doing safety tests for a Portuguese company called Bial. And what happened is that five patients who were taking this drug fell ill quite severely, and and one of them died over the weekend. Uh, His brain showed signs of uh, necrotic damage and and hemorrhaging. The main story here, though, seems to be what we don't actually know. Yeah, the company has yet to release a a lot of details about about this incident, what drug uh, they were testing. They've only said the general class of drugs. How many people received this drug previously? uh, The safety tests that occurred in animals before humans got this drugs? The dosage? I mean, you could just go on and on about the questions that are unanswered here. What would researchers actually be able to do with this information if they had it? The first thing people want to know is what was this drug that that, that these people were given? The company has said that the the drug inhibited an enzyme called fatty acid amide hydrolase. And what this enzyme does, it's active in the brain, and it's part of uh, what's called our endocannabinoid system, which is kind of a a system of uh, neurotransmitters and neural receptors. They're the same ones that cannabis acts on. And the goal of drugs like this is to simulate some of the aspects of cannabis without the negative side effects. Namely, a lot of people have looked at drugging this pathway to treat pain. So what stages were the clinical trials at? So this was what is called a phase one trial. It's, as its name implies, the first trial that's done in patients. And it's only done to test for safety um, of the compound. It's generally done in people who, who don't have health problems or healthy volunteers who are generally paid for their time. And do we have any idea what might have caused these off-target effects of this drug? Y- you mentioned this term off-target effects, and that's, that's something we don't even know. So we know this, this drug is designed to inhibit this molecule in the endocannabinoid pathway, basically creating more en- endocannabinoids circulating to the brain. But it's, it's possible, scientists have told me, that this compound is inhibiting or altering other proteins. We really have no idea w- what these are in hopes of identifying what even this drug is. Some scientists have looked to the patent filings uh, of this company and identified a candidate molecule. As of, as of today, it has not been confirmed, but they are now trying to model what are the potential off-target effects of, of this compound. There's always some
1: risk that a clinical trial may have adverse effects like this. Is there any reason, though, to think
5: that this trial could have been operated in a safer way? I don't think we have enough information to answer that question, On honestly. Clinical trial regulations in France are very severe. So you've got to assume that the, the company did all the due diligence there. They did safety testing uh, in, in animals. You know, this never would have been approved if regulators had thought it was going to cause these kinds. Of problems. So looking forward, do we expect to find out some more information about what happened here? I think, I think eventually, um, there was a, there was a similar incident in a clinical trial in the UK, um, Maybe a, a decade or so ago, and an official inquiry was launched and, you know, had a, a public report. But my colleague in, in France, who's, who's reported on this as well, has said that, that French investigations tend to be very tight-lipped. So it could be some time before we actually know what, what's gone on here.
1: On now to our second story. And a few days ago, the WHO, the World Health Organization, announced that Ebola had been stopped in West Africa. And just a couple of hours after that, a case of a death from Ebola was announced.
5: How did this happen in such short succession? What was announced? It was the first time that the three uh, Ebola endemic countries, Sierra Leone, Guinea and Liberia, had all effectively stopped transmission, which means it's been it had been forty-two days since the last case. What happened though was, you know, basically hours later, a young woman in in Sierra Leone died of what was confirmed to be Ebola. And the WHO is still investigating what caused this, but the most likely explanation is that She contracted Ebola from somebody who was latently infected. Uh, We didn't know this before, but we've now learned that even after somebody survives Ebola, they carry virus in in certain areas of their body, uh, in semen, around their eyes. And this virus can potentially infect other people. And it's happened numerous other times. How big a setback is this? You know, the WHO, when they announced that an Ebola transmission has stopped across West Africa, they said that this sort of thing was likely. So they were kind of planning for it. They were expecting it. They weren't trying to get people's hopes up and being, you know, very celebratory. It shows that despite more than 11,000 deaths and 20,000 cases. Hospitals maybe aren't watching as closely as they should for Ebola relapses. Um, This woman traveled some distance on on public transport. She went to hospital and reportedly was sent back with clear Ebola symptoms. So I think, you know, this this should be a wake-up call. Ewan, thank you very
1: much for joining us. As always, you can find all those stories at nature.com forward slash news.
4: That's all we've got time for this week. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts on the show. So drop us an email at podcast at or tweet us at nature podcast. Hope to hear from you soon. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things